We're going to continue what we started a couple weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I told you that I had a three-part sermon that God made me stop after the first um, point. And um, last week, yes, you got point number two. Uh, today, guess what? You're going to get point number three. And so if we get done early, we get done early. Uh, but this is kind of what God said, so we're going to continue to do it. We talked last week about, the last two weeks rather, about real Christian community and what that looks like. Um, specifically the community of faith. Obviously, my greatest concern is for this church and for the church universal, that we would become the kind of Christian community that would speak to those around this community, those in, in our um, secular community, about who Jesus is. And so for us to understand what real Christian community is, is very important. The first week we talked about how real Christian community flows from the person of Jesus. It flows from him and him alone. He is the head of the body of Christ. If you want to use the body analogy, he is the chief cornerstone uh, of the building that God is building. If you want to use the building analogy, both of which are in the New Testament. But this community of faith that we are a part of comes from and flows out of the person and the teachings and the example that Jesus set for us. And so if we're going to become the community of faith, a real community of faith, then we need to come to know Jesus better and better and better each and every day. Last week we talked about how um, a real Christian community is not an ideal, but rather it's a divine reality. It's not something that any human being thought up. It's not something that I as a leader can kind of project on the congregation and try to make you into, or at least not something that I should do that with. Real Christian community is something that we simply participate in. It's kind of like watching the river flow by and instead of trying to redefine what a river is, you just jump in. How's that for an analogy? You know, and then you go with the flow once you're in it. Because the reality is, Christ by his death on the cross and by the example he set for us has established what real Christian community is. And so our job is not to redefine it. Our job is to jump into it and be a part of it and participate with it. And of course, figure out how is God telling us to live that out in our specific situation. And so last week, that's what we talked about. Today, I want to talk about another reality. Real Christian community is a spiritual reality, not a human reality. It's a spiritual reality, not a human reality. The basis of all spiritual reality is, of course, the Word of God. It has something that it is built on, that it is founded on, and that something, that spiritual reality in which we live, is built on is the Word of God made real to us in the life and teachings of Jesus. Jesus is called by the Scriptures God's Word, the Word made flesh. And so not only did Jesus come to speak, and not only did He come to act, but by His very life, He was the Word of truth. Jesus is the Word of God, and the Scriptures Scriptures, which we, we call the Bible, are basically the, the description of God's plan from the beginning of time uh, to help Israel, to walk through Israel, and how they would prepare us for Jesus to come through their lineage. And so when Jesus came, he fulfilled all of that. And so spiritual reality as we know it is based on the Word of God made real to us in the life and teachings of Jesus. On the other hand, the basis of all human reality is unfortunately dark and sin-stained by the desires of the sinful flesh. Now, I know that sounds depressing. 
But that was not the way God intended for it to be in the beginning. In the beginning, he created Adam and Eve. He created humanity to be eternal beings, to walk with him and talk with him and have relationship. He created us perfect. But unfortunately, because of the entrance of sin, because Adam and Eve chose sin, now everything that that is physical, that is natural, is essentially stained by sin. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't good things in this world. It doesn't mean there aren't beautiful things in this world. If you've seen a beautiful sunrise, you know that that's true. If you've ever been uh, to a place where there's beautiful mountains or, or wonderful seas, uh, the Caribbean, all those places that are absolutely gorgeous, it doesn't mean that there aren't beautiful things in the world. But it simply means that everything in this world that is natural, that is part of the human reality, is stained by the impact of sin on us. And so you have these two things at war in the New Testament, and Paul talks about it, and some of the other biblical writers talk about the nature of the sinful flesh versus the spirit. And so this battle is happening. And what we need to understand is that the community, real Christian community, is a spiritual reality, not a human reality. Let me give you some of the differences. The basis of the community of the spirit is truth, where the basis of human community is rather our desire to have needs met and to have what we want. The essence of community in the spirit is light. Uh, 1 John 1, 5 through 7 says this, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with who? With who? You weren't watching, were you? We have fellowship with each other. Fellowship community. If we live in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So living in the light, again, becomes the basis of human community. On the other side of that spectrum, human communities, um, excuse me, the essence of human community is darkness. Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 21. And then Jesus added, it is what comes from the inside that defiles you. You see, the Jews thought that it was the outward sins that made you dirty, that made you defiled, that made you unclean. And what Jesus says is this, it is what comes from the inside of you that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lust desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. And so it isn't what we come into contact with that makes us unclean spiritually. It's what comes from inside of us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, Pastor, that list is way bigger than what I'm seeing coming out of my life. Well, it doesn't mean all of us do all of that, but that's where those things originate. They did not come from the created world. They came from within us. And so there's these two different things at war with each other. The community of the Spirit is characterized by a God-inspired love that seeks the good of others over that of oneself. The human community is one where love is self-serving, seeking the betterment for oneself first and foremost. A spiritual community is one with the Spirit of God at the top. The Spirit of God at the top. Jesus, of course, being the head of the body, but with the Holy Spirit of God helping us by indwelling us, telling us what it is that we need to do to follow Jesus. And so he is calling the shots and giving the directions and drawing all of us to the example of Jesus. In human communities, there's usually a person at the top. 
a lot of times someone impressive, someone that has the ability to draw a crowd, someone that has influence over people who brings them in and, and leads them along. Now, again, there's nothing innately wrong with that. But in a spiritual community, it needs to be the Spirit of God. For instance, in a family, you usually have in a human family, which is what I would call a, a, a human community. It's something that comes together because we're, we're beings that were created and, and we have children and therefore the children grow up in the family. Usually there is someone who is at the head of the family. Most of us men like to think it's us. That got a really good laugh in first service. Either you're asleep or all of the men already know their place in the pecking order in this group. I don't know how that, I don't know which way it is. But the people in first service chuckled. But, you know, most of us understand that, that there's kind of a different perspective. I love the fact that God created man and woman as helpers suitable for each other because I'm here to tell you, as much as I would love to call myself the head of the household and the top dog, that there have been times that I have want, gone to make a decision and I realized that my wife had a perspective I desperately needed before I made that decision. And I would imagine that she might have once or twice in her life thought the same thing of me, but I'm not going to press that issue any further. Right? But in a human family, there's usually a person at the head. Now, by its very nature, that makes it an imperfect community because none of us are perfect. Amen? I mean, except Pastor Dennis. Pastor Dennis is perfect. All the rest of us are a little bit under, underneath the standard. Just, just Pastor Dennis. Jan is looking at me with a glare right now. She's like, no, don't even say that out loud. Anyway, we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, even Pastor Dennis. We're not perfect. And because of that, human communities with a person at the top can never be perfect. So where does that leave us as a church? Because the church is, to some degree, a human community, isn't it? Our individual body of believers is people coming together for a purpose with a person that kind of leads us. Well, here's how the church is supposed to work. The church is supposed to have Jesus at the top with the Holy Spirit leading the way through the leaders who are leading the church. And if those leaders ever are doing what the Holy Spirit is saying not to do or not doing what the Holy Spirit says to do, then you've got a problem. Then we default to being a human community instead of a spiritual community. But God's design for us is that we would be a spiritual community. Listen, the people who started the Church of God Reformation movement, of which this church is a part, we're a non-denominational church that, that affiliates by, um, by our own choice with other churches. D.S. Warner kind of founded our movement. And what he did in the late 1800s is he kind of came across the same truth and said, you know what, it's not right for human beings to be leading God's church. And so they separated themselves from the church and said, we're only going to follow Jesus. We want Jesus at the top. Uh, the Bible is our rule of faith and Christ alone is Lord. And you know, because of that, they didn't even have leadership at the beginning. They just all kind of did it all loosey-goosey, willy-nilly. In fact, when you would go to a camp meeting in the summertime... Instead of asking a preacher to preach for the week of camp meeting like we do today, they would just line up all the preachers who were there who happened to be there that night, and if one of them felt called that they had a message to share, they would stand up and share the message. Any of, does that scare any of you to death? I mean, because, I mean, think about this for a minute. I mean, they preached longer back then, probably an hour at least. What if two of them felt like they had a message? Or three? I mean, eventually it's going to be as long a sermon as Dennis preaches. I mean, geez, that's a... Anyway, I'm, I'm picking on Dennis. I missed him. Anyway, but that's how they used to do it. They believed that the Holy Spirit should so lead the church that human beings shouldn't be in structure above other people. 
And so they rejected titles. They didn't want the title of doctor or reverend or any of those things. They instead wanted brother or sister. That's what they did. The other reason they called everybody brother or sister is because they couldn't remember each other's names. How many of you know that's true, right? Yeah, that's true in the church. It is. And so that's how it was. And so they literally just tried their best to follow the Holy Spirit. Well, over the years they learned that if you don't have some kind of leadership structure, things get pretty dicey and get kind of out of hand. But that doesn't change the fact that those of us in the church, not just pastors, but board members and leaders and youth pastors and other, other positions in the church, we are to first and foremost be led by the Spirit of God and then lead through that, whatever we receive from them. And you as the congregation, it is your job to make sure that the leaders who are leading you, that, that what they are saying and what they are doing is in concert with Scripture, that it makes sense in what God is doing in your life. Now, it doesn't mean that every person's opinion it basically is then imposed on the church. What it means is that your job is to make sure that I, as the leader, am listening to God by checking what I say against Scripture and making sure that where I'm leading doesn't violate some rule or law of God or even the principles that Scriptures teach. And so it's your job as a congregation to hold leadership accountable, just as it's our job to listen to God and to lead you in the direction we believe he's taking us. And so a spiritual community has the Holy Spirit of God at the head, not just a person, because if a person is leading, there is that possibility of imperfection. A spiritual community is one with the Spirit of God at the top. To kind of put all of this in a more practical framework, let's look at the difference between human love and spiritual love, because after all, I believe, and I think you probably do too, that at the center of community is this thing that we call love. And, and most of us misunderstand greatly what love even is these days, and I blame popular music for that. If you listen to some of the love songs that are out there, some of what they describe as love has nothing to do with love. Can I get an amen? And even in the Christian community, there's some songs I'm going, you know, uh, I need you, oh, I need you. I'm not sure that's love. You know, there, there's different variations, but let's understand a little bit what the difference is between human and <clears throat> spiritual love. The difference, I believe, can be determined by examining why it is that we do what we do as a loving act. Because to help someone in need or, or to do something loving towards someone is always a good thing, but the reason that you do it will help you define what kind of love it is, whether you're doing it from a spiritual standpoint or whether you're doing it from a human standpoint. Do you love someone because it makes, your, makes life better for them? Or do you love someone because it makes life better for you? Do you love them because Jesus would love them or because in some way it gives you a strategic advantage over them or makes you feel better or puts you in control? I'm always elated and fascinated by the lengths at which people, especially in the church, are willing to go to help people that are really, really in need. And you know the people I'm talking about. I mean, all of us have needs of some kind or another, but every once in a while, there are people in our midst that have extraordinary needs, like those, for instance, who have a family member who is fighting um, some debilitating disease. Um, we've had a whole range of them run amok through our church and, and take some of the people that we love the most. Um, Sandy, 
um, went away to a form of ALS. Sandy uh, passed away, our, our former daycare uh, director, and many of us jumped the bandwagon and, and tried our very best to help out, and, and the community of faith gathered around her and supported her through that. Um, just recently, Steve, of course, had camper and <laughs> had camper? You wish he'd had a camper, don't you, Sharon? Yeah. Cancer. I'm sorry, I told you this is going to be a weird day. My mouth just won't work. Uh, Steve had cancer, and not only did the community of faith wrap themselves around her, I'd go to her house, and every time I went there, there were three more people there helping out. Man, this woman was running a hotel there for a little while, so bless your heart for that. But they were there to surround her and support her and help her, and I see things on Facebook about people, whole communities like schools and, and workplaces and families all joining together to help people who are in need. But the interesting thing to me is when you look at, at who they help, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I'm always fascinated to see how people tend to flock to the age of some people and yet completely become indifferent to others. Because we do, as a church and as a community and even as a society, jump to the aid of those who are in most need, or at least those that we know that have need. And yet I'm always fascinated about the way that sometimes we're really behind some people and completely indifferent to others. And usually it's directly related to who else is helping them or fueled by social media in some way. If, if somebody puts it on Facebook, suddenly it goes crazy. It's very momentum-driven. If there's a bunch of people helping, then a bunch more people want to get involved. We're, we're often driven to jump on the bandwagon for someone who is young, mostly, or attractive, or, or pleasant, or maybe has small children and a loving spouse that they're going to leave behind. Um, we tend to, to all of a sudden see GoFundMe pages pop up and meal trains kind of get started um, and, and it offers to babysit the kids are extended. Social media posts go nuts with status reports that are shared to thousands and thousands of our friends and connections. These days, one of the trends is, is to make t-shirts for the person to help them fight the fight, you know, to, to bring attention to the fact that they're fighting whatever this disease might be. And, and what I think is one of the most ridiculous things that people do is, is do a 5K to help raise money for them. Why would you torture people as a way to raise money? I don't understand that. You people are nuts. Why not let people play basketball to raise money for them, right? That would be awesome. I would love that. Or eat donuts. You know, how many donuts can you... I can eat 5,000 donuts. That's a 5K, right? 5,000 donuts. I could do that to raise money for someone. But to run a race is just... I'm not going to call it foolishness. I'll back down. That's my opinion. Uh, but anyway, all of these things tend to happen. And it's huge. So much buzz, and, and it's good. Don't get me wrong. I love it when people get support, when people who need it get help. I think it's an awesome, incredible thing. I love to see people supported in their time of need. But why some and not others? That's my question. Why do entire communities, in other words, a church, a neighborhood, a school, a town, tend to rally around one need instead of addressing the thousands of other needs that are out there? Because you know when that young mom or that young dad went into the cancer clinic on the day that they had to go for their treatments, there were probably hundreds of other people going in and out of that same clinic that day with the very same need and the very same issue. So why do we do that? I believe it's because we love to love them, but it's a form of human love. And again, let me clarify. <clears throat> if I can talk. <clears throat> Excuse me. I believe the answer is this. 
It's because we know them, right? We help people we know. Why? Because we like them, right? We know them. We feel good about the connection we have with them. We love to be one of many that is helping because that's easier, let's be honest. It gives us a sense of camaraderie when we're banding together with other people to help someone in need. You know, it, it's one of those things that, that gives us a sense of belonging, and it also means that we don't have to carry their burdens alone. We can kind of pick and choose. Listen, if I jump the bandwagon and help a person that thousands of other people are helping, I can pick and choose which need of theirs I want to meet. But if I go find somebody that doesn't have anybody helping them, maybe even somebody who's not that pleasant, somebody who's not that good-looking or maybe not that young, if I'm there by myself, guess what I have to do? or what I'm going to feel compelled to do. If I have compassion, I'm going to have to meet all of their needs, and that's hard, and that's a trial, and that's difficult, and it does not give you the warm fuzzies, maybe, like helping somebody with a group of people who are all gung-ho about it. Listen, the answer simply is this. There's something in it for us. It gives us a feeling of ownership, of warm fuzzies, of control. They're ours because we help them. For spiritual love, none of that is needed. For physical love, for human love, we will often rally to the aid of other people because of the feeling that it gives us, because of what we see happening around us, and because momentum is headed in that direction. But truly spiritual love will love anybody who needs it. Regardless of whether other people are jumping on the bandwagon, regardless whether that person is pleasant, regardless of whether we even have a relationship with them or whether we even like them. Now, I understand that people are more likely to accept help from someone that they know. I get that. But friends, truly spiritual love will love everyone. In fact, Jesus even said that we're to love our enemies. Let me tell you something. Human love does not do that. Human love will never look at an enemy and say, I'm going to help you out. That's where human love ends. And spiritual love begins. And yet Jesus did that as our example on the cross of Calvary. And he taught that it was what we were to do when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, spiritual love doesn't need anything to love someone. It doesn't need to feel good. It simply loves because the need is there. Human love ends when, we, when, we, when what we desire to get from it diminishes. When my desire for closeness is no longer being fulfilled, when my needs are no longer being met, when faced with the unpleasant or with those who disagree or those who call themselves our enemy, um, it often, our, our love often turns to hatred. I've even seen it happen where so many people were helping a person that some of the people around the fringes got offended that the person didn't want to accept their help. Well, the truth of the matter was they didn't need it. Real love, true Christian love, loves regardless. Spiritual love serves while human love is an end in itself. It worships the desires that feed it and only truly loves itself. Human love lives by um, uncontrolled and uncontrollable dark desires, but spiritual love lives in the clear light of service ordered by the truth, the truth of God's word.
Listen, real Christian community is a spiritual reality driven by spiritual love as demonstrated by Jesus himself and inspired by his spirit, not by human reality, not driven by our own desires and experiences. Whether you feel warm fuzzies or not, real Christian community exists. I told you earlier that, that this series was kind of based off a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived, of course, during Nazi Germany. And, and as he lived during this time, he, he certainly lived during a time when kumbaya moments were few and far between. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? I, that might be a younger term for some of you. you remember, how many of you remember the song Kumbaya? You, you want to sing that together? Yes, around campfires. A campfire was required if you were going to sing Kumbaya. For instance, if we wanted to sing it here, we'd have to burn something. So, But those of us that, that were around during the 70s, and I was barely around during the 70s, I don't have as much experience as some of you, but might remember that people would gather in circles and sing Kumbaya around campfires. And, and this is kind of one of those things that's famous for happening at youth camps and youth retreats and adult camps and adult retreats. We all love to go away on a retreat and feel really good about our community for about 10 minutes because it's easy to do that. Listen, <coughs> excuse me, it's easy to feel good. It's easy to get the warm fuzzies when you go to a men's retreat, for instance, and you're out there with a bunch of other guys shooting guns at targets and stuff. That's not the direction some of you thought I was going to go with that, was it? <clears throat> but that's what our men's retreat is, man. It's eat food, shoot stuff, and play basketball if you want. It's kind of a dream come true. But you get there, and you feel this feeling. And let me tell you something. It's great. Because Christian community is one of the most wonderful things you will ever experience. But here's the thing. Christian community is not about the experience. It's not about those kumbaya moments. And that's what Bonhoeffer knew. You see, he was living during a time when fellowship faded quickly in the madness of Nazis taking over his country and the church that he served being divided in half with some wanting to follow Hitler and others believing you should stand against him. And as he started to become one who opposed the government of his day, suddenly the Christians that he knew and loved and had warm fuzzies with, some of them were calling him out and wanting to turn him in. He has some insight, I think, into this. I want to share with you a quote that he wrote that I think is important. I'm going to actually put it on the screen. You can read it with me as you go. Um, just hear this. It's kind of long, so watch your neighbor and give him that little elbow if you need to. We have no claim, he says, upon such experiences. In other words, those kumbaya experiences. And we do not live with other Christians for the sake of acquiring them. It is not the experience of Christian brotherhood, but solid and certain faith in that brotherhood that holds us together. Let me read that part again. It is not the experience of the Christian brotherhood, but solid and certain faith in brotherhood that holds us together. That God has acted and wants to act upon us all, this we see in faith as God's greatest gift. This makes us glad and happy but it also makes us ready to forego all such experiences when God at times does not grant them. We are bound together by faith, not by experience. Listen, what he means here is this. Some of you have been a part of a lot of churches in your lifetime. 
Some of you may have even left a church or two because the experience dwindled. The fellowship wasn't as rich. Maybe the warm fuzzies were no longer there. Maybe you didn't feel like you were getting something from it. And I just want to share with you humbly from a pastor's heart that it is what Bonhoeffer is talking about that is the cure for our churches today. People who don't have to experience the warm fuzzies all the time to believe and have faith that the Christian community is still intact. During COVID, many of us who led and were here by ourselves began to wonder, is this real, is this Christian community called the North Avenue Church, does it even still exist? Are there even still people out there? Do we even still have a church? And let me tell you something, it was our faith that one day you would come back together that kept us here preaching at Beanie Babies on Sunday mornings and leading singing when none of us really felt capable of broadcasting. Man, that was a train wreck. Listen, the Christian community is not about how we feel. Just as our faith is in Christ alone, whether we feel saved or not, the Christian community exists whether we feel it or not because it's a part of Christ's reality. It is a spiritual reality, not a human reality. And as such, it is perfect and it is present. And it's our job to jump in the river and be a part of it. Let me, let me pray as we end today. Father in heaven, I feel like my, my, my mind is clouded this morning as I try to get the words out. And these are hard, hard concepts to comprehend. The notion that the physical relationships and the physical community, the human community we're used to being a part of isn't all that exists is such a hard thing because many of us have learned how to relate to each other in the world around us with all the rules of society and with the rules of humanity. And some of us have learned that the best way to be happy is to get what we can out of other people and to do that which serves us the best. But in a real Christian community, we are called to live by a different standard. We are called to be present for those who need us regardless of whether we ever receive anything in return for that. We are called to love those who are unlovable. We are called to love our enemies. We are called to love um, those who attend different churches than us and those who are in different denominations than us. We're called to love people who sin daily <laughs> and also love people who think they never have. We've got a few of those in the church. We're called to love without conditions, God, because that's what you did for us. God, I pray that we would become that kind of church where we wouldn't just love because there's something in it for us or because everybody else is doing it or because it gives us the warm fuzzies, but that we would roll up our sleeves and serve where needed because the need is great, the harvest is great, and the laborers are few according to your words. God, that's the church we want to be, a church that serves a church that is real Christian community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.